Hi, everybody. This is your co-host, Brantley Palmer. Uh, me and Nick are taking a little bit of a break this holiday weekend, enjoying Thanksgiving and spending time with family, so we don't have a new Horror Drafts episode for you this week. However, we didn't want to leave you hanging, so what we did um, is we went back to the archive. We basically um, uh, used to do a, a podcast. Uh, we recorded uh, about six or seven episodes of it back in like 2019, very early 2020, so this started even before the pandemic, um, but it never got released. At the time, we were calling these the Let's Get Physical podcast. However, since we never released it, since we had started recording, there's actually another podcast that has come out called the let's get physical media podcast um, so for the time being i guess we're going to refer to these as our like physical media matters type of episodes and uh, we will be sprinkling these into the horror drafts feed um, as we feel it's necessary um, so maybe unlike weeks where we don't have a new horror drafts episode we'll release some of these older ones as you listen just please keep in mind these were recorded uh, about over two years ago for some of these at this point so there might be some outdated information and, and material in there uh, but you will obviously notice that as you're as you're listening uh, thanks everybody and we hope you enjoy Hey everybody, Brantley here. I just wanted to touch base with you folks before the episode starts uh, because the introductory segment um, for this episode is going to be a bit longer than what will be the norm in the following episodes. Um, that's because Nick and I are going to be diving into our history, um, both how we met, um, our history in the business, our history collecting physical media, things of that nature. Um, so it's going to be much longer than normal intro segments are. So if you're feeling bored or don't want to, <laughs> don't care about that, uh, just just feel free to skip forward uh, into our interview with Sean uh, and the rest of the podcast will uh, go on from there. Thanks. Let's get physical, physical. I think that's all I can sing, all I can sing without getting sued, sued. So I'm turning this into a parody song, parody song. Oh, that was really dumb. <laughs> that was really stupid. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Brantley Palmer. Uh, I am uh, the co-host of the Let's Get Physical podcast. Uh, and I am joined, as always, by my uh, fellow film school alum, my fellow father to a toddler, and the keeper of The Shrining. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Nicholas Schwartz. Nick, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. That was quite an intro. Uh, yeah, was that as dumb as I thought it came off? No, I thought that was great. Oh, I meant you introduced me in quite an interesting, unexpected way. So, no, I thought it was oh, good. Oh. The intro was fantastic. That's nice of you. I, I assumed you were talking about my horrible singing, which uh, I cannot say. No, that was hilarious. All. That was great. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to the uh, inaugural episode of the Let's Get Physical podcast. Uh, this is a podcast about physical media and the people who love it. Uh, Nick, uh, how do you want to start this off, man? You want to tell people kind of how we first got to know each other, how we first met? Where, where do you want to start? Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, I feel like we're going to be touching upon our uh, histories with physical media throughout the series, I would imagine. Um, yeah. So, sure, yeah. Um, do you want to kick it off? 
I have a very distinct sure. memory. I, I remember exactly how. Oh, but you go first. I, I hey, I do too. This is great. I so I have a distinct memory. I believe so. I'm really my memory is actually really bad. So it's it's really interesting that I have this distinct memory. I believe it was orientation, freshman year. Uh, of film school uh, you and I uh, both went to Keene State College and I was wearing an evil dead uh, like winter hat uh, that's at least the way I remember it and you and I happened to be in I believe the same orientation group and I believe like you noticed the hat and then we sort of bonded over the evil dead and horror in general and then it just essentially became like fast friends does that sound right to you, or am I yeah, mixing I'm up blown a- away because aspects? Usually, I have the weird, like, exact memory, and that's like exactly, exactly what happened. I, I remember distinctly your Evil Dead hat, and I noticed it somewhere during the tour of the of the um, of the program, and made a mental mm-hmm. note that when the orientation was over, I had to say something like "nice hat." And I'm really socially awkward, and I was like, "That's where it's going to end." I'm going to say "nice hat," and like, if he says "thanks," great. Uh, did not have any greater ambition. I did not think that you would say anything back. But then we got into a really good conversation about horror movies, and uh, and I can't remember. It was in June of 2004. I also remember talking about how Dodgeball was coming out that day with Ben Stiller. Um, oh wow! And, uh, okay. Yes, and then um, and then in August, whenever we moved in on move-in day. I also remember seeing someone sitting on the library steps and I was like, oh, it's Brantley, I gotta go say hi. And it turned out to be someone who looked just like you and it was a really (laughs) awkward encounter. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll never see Brantley again. But a year later we were in, was it sophomore film? It was film production two. So it was my sophomore year. Um, Okay. And uh, and yeah. people in that in that class it was we were shooting 16 millimeter films and it was one mm-hmm. uh, you know it was a semester long it was a spring semester and um the way that class was structured was that people would partner up and uh help each other make their films so um you know one person would direct and the other would shoot it um and edit and vice versa and that's how the semester worked out and Brantley and I partnered up and um yeah we worked on on each other's short films that that semester and I I vividly remember feeling like an asshole that whole time because I made the dick move of deciding that I had to shoot my film an hour away from school and Brantley drove us there like three weekends in a row to stay we crashed at my parents house and we shot this film (laughs) at our friends of my family's house for three weekends in a row it was just me Brantley and uh, and the actress in the film Uh, so to this day I still feel bad about that but that's how we met no don't don't feel bad at all I I remember we shot, I want to say up in like an attic somewhere yep. in like that, the, the houses we were shooting. Cause I remember that cause it was like a real creepy scene. It looked beautiful by the way, when it came out. Oh, thank you. And I remember you shot it. I remember. Oh, did I? Yeah. You didn't. Are you sure? A hundred percent sure. Yeah. You shot it. Yep. That was how that thing oh. was structured and it did. It does look gorgeous. So, uh, so it probably wasn't as good as I was thinking. Then. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. But no, it does. It looks you... amazing. <laughs> Well, and then I remember we, we we at least one of these weekends must have gone out to get Chinese food. Because I, I have a memory of, of getting Chinese food, I think, when we were on one of these one of these shoots. I don't remember that, but I believe you, and we probably did. Yeah. Um, this is so funny. I don't know why you felt so bad about this. I never I, – I, I have probably not thought in the least about the – 
you know inconvenience of shooting an hour away since since film school it's just i think especially at that time we were, you know you're so into film and you're so into like you know working on those projects that it's like you know it's not nearly the the impetus that it would be now now that we both have like kids and everything <laughs> like the idea of like taking a weekend off to go shoot somewhere is like that's insane there's no way i could possibly do that yeah that's um, true. so no <laughs> Dude, you, you shouldn't feel bad in any way. Although, I have to say, we must have hung out freshman year. Oh, yeah, because, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember what was it, Katamari? De- Damacy, uh, yes. What's, Damacy, yeah, on PS2. Yeah. I remember watching either Wreck or The Eye or one of those Japanese horror films in your dorm room. Yeah, those, yeah. Um, and I remember, I remember the Red Sox winning the uh, f- their first World Series because I think I was hanging out with you at the time. Yeah, um, and I left your dorm, I think, to join like everybody out in the quad, like who was basically having a good time before it turned into <laughs> more of a uh, of a riot. Right, um, that's right. And then I went back to my dorm and was like, okay, this is this is enough. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's true. We definitely did. I I don't know. Yeah. It was weird because I took a ton of. If I remember correctly, um, it wasn't like and my cousin right now is in film school in Austin, and um, nice. and she's taking a ton of you know prereq courses, and, and I don't know if she even took a, a single film course her her first year there. Um, she's just starting mm. her her sophomore year now. Um, but I remember taking a ton of um, like I took one film production course freshman year, but also a bunch of film studies courses. Um, yeah. And uh, film analysis and intro to film, and I forget what else I took that year, but a ton. And uh, and those were like you know lecture hall classes, and and there were like sixty people. And I just always thought it was funny that we we didn't we weren't in any of those classes together. It wasn't until like sophomore year that we actually got to take a film class together. But we did hang out a lot. Yeah, we did. We totally watched those movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering, did we have any other film classes together besides P2? I really don't think we did. I mean, we we both directed yeah. um, in 2000 senior year. senior year, yeah, four. Yeah, um, and then I I, I don't because I took so I did um, I did film production for a major, but then I uh, film for a major, but I had a dual, I guess, concentration with both uh, production and theory. So I went like real heavy on a bunch of theory classes as well, besides just what you needed for production. Right. Um, and so I took like multiple genres of directors and da 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 da. So it's so weird that we never cross paths again in any of the other film classes. It's super weird. I was one class away from dual majoring as well. Um, oh, yeah, it gotcha. was um, it was a film theory class, and and that was senior year when we were both directing our films, and and I couldn't get yeah. through the you know, the thesis paper at the end. Like I just, I, I dropped out halfway through that class, but yeah, to this day, I'm just mm-hmm. like, I'm four credits shy of, of dual majoring. Gotcha. Go back. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, so, so that's our history, like how we met. And then, so after that, uh, after we graduated in 2008, uh, I moved down to Boston. Uh, my wife was going to grad school down there. Um, I started trying to find work in like film and TV. It took a little while, you know, it's unfortunate we, we, you know, graduated into a recession essentially. So in Boston at that time had been filming a ton of movies, but there, it was a writer strike and a recession. And so it was like, even before that summer, I think there had been like eight films, major Hollywood films shooting at one time in Boston and then it shrunk down to two. 
like basically uh, as I was getting there. So it was just like a real hard time finding work, uh, work period, quite honestly, but work in film and TV. Um, I eventually found my footing. I started working at uh, New England Sports Network and I worked there for four years starting in 2009. I worked there until 2013. Uh, what did, what did you start up in working after, right after school? Um, we moved, I moved with my now wife to Philadelphia. Um, she got a job mm-hmm. at the Philly, uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And, um, nice. and so I was doing anything I could in Philly at that time to, to, um, basically keep my foot, like you said, in, in film. Um, so it was in, yeah. a few internships. I interned with a documentarian, um, did some editing, um, for her and uh, and anyway um, uh, probably took like two or three months I got a job working um, for a company that contracted with, with Comcast and we edited the um, the local on-demand segments that probably no one has has ever seen so um, you may have seen them if you even saw them in the menu of your on-demand thing I'd be shocked but it was like local uh-huh. dating ads local pet adoption things like they were contracted to do all of those for every um regional comcast affiliate in the country so we were editing you know from cities all over um and i did that sort of on a freelance basis for a while and then eventually got like all of a sudden like the, it was like weird the, the floodgates opened and i got these two full-time editing jobs um at once and one was editing a feature film with tony todd um, oh, nice. Yeah. What was that? It's called Changing the Game. It came out in 2012 huh. or 2013. It had like a limited okay. theatrical release. Um, that was made by a Philadelphia uh, filmmaker named Rel Dowdell. And I got that job like a month after I got a job editing um, this documentary series called um, Philadelphia the Great Experiment, which is basically like the Ken Burns' New York or whatever to Philadelphia, mm. um, which is still nice. ongoing. So that's cool. Yeah, that's totally awesome, man. I, I, you know, we we live in different states right now and, and kind of have since film school. But I guess this already is like worth it for this podcast. I feel like we've really reconnected over this. And now I'm learning things about you I never knew. I had no idea you like uh, edited a feature film. Oh, yep. Like, that's awesome, man. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was, uh, yeah. it was an experience for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, this is great. I'm like for, well, this is our first episode. So we should say like Brantley... Uh, created this. This is his idea, and I'm so flattered and, and thankful that he asked me to be part of it. Um, I, I don't know if it's, I guess maybe because we both have like an Instagram presence at this point about collecting physical media, um, but yeah, totally reconnected, and, and it's been very cool um, for all those reasons you just said, and, and also just because I think hopefully uh, we're filling some sort of a, a void in this, in this podcast community. Um, and yeah. I, don't know, I think a lot of people will find this this topic relevant. I don't think it's exclusive to the hobby of collecting um, movies. It's certainly like Sean. Oh, right, this is an intro. So we haven't spoken to Sean yet, but Sean might speak about. <laughs> oh, no, but uh, yes, through the magic of editing, yes. Sean will come in later. <laughs> we will talk to him about uh, right. VHS and some other things actually, but VHS probably primarily. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's, yeah. And you know, here's the thing. It's like, there are a bunch, there's a bajillion podcasts, period now. So it's kind of like, why would you ever do it? Because you just, you know, it, part of it's just like, you feel like you're gonna get lost in the noise of everything, which, you know, who knows? We may only have like five different followers, five like followers who listen to us. But 
you know, there's all these different podcasts that are very specific to formats. There's vinyl collecting. There's, you know, podcasts about books, podcasts about film, podcasts about, like, VHS specifically. Or, like, there's just the disc, which is just about, like, Blu-rays. But I don't know if there's really any podcasts that just, you know, are all about, like, physical media collection as a whole. And the, the wide spectrum that that, that, that uh, is. Um, and, you know, I think we should also say that, you know, we're not you know we both love like the internet and streaming and and the the freedom and ease of use um that comes with streaming but we also are just fans of physical media i think um you know i've been collecting it all my life i'm sure you've probably been collecting it all your life um and i think part of this podcast is just kind of celebrating that community that collects physical media um and it really is a community. It's interesting. You mentioned the Instagram. I, 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 <laughs> I have a private account on Instagram, so I don't have much of a presence at all. Um, and I only have like a little bit of stuff on there about my um, uh, collecting. Uh, um, you actually like tagged me in a couple of things, like meet the VHS collector and stuff like that. Oh, that's right. But, um, but you know, uh, and I post very infrequently. I guess I should change that. But there, there's a real community on Instagram. Uh, for VHS collecting specifically, but I imagine lots of different collecting communities. I mean, I've seen like toys and video games and comics, of course, and you know, you name it. I, I I'm sure there's ones for like every different type of community. And I think, um, as much as you kind of mention it in the interview with Sean later on, as much as physical media when we were growing up was a communal endeavor where you would like go to the video store with your family or your friends and you would come home and watch, you know, that horror movie that like was creepy and scary with a group of friends or something. Um, I, I don't think people necessarily do that now, especially the, the people who are within a lot of these communities because they tend to be older. So there may be like, watching them more on their own or with a spouse, not necessarily in the big communal grouping that they used to, but the community online that has come in has really kind of um, created that, that interplay between different people, even if they're not in the same space watching the same film. Um, and I think that's one of the really kind of cool benefits that the internet brings to, to the collecting hobby. Totally. Um, that's a really interesting take on it because I, I think you're 100% right. And uh, yeah, my experience with, with like the social aspect of this has been, um, I don't know, kind of surprising. Uh, I was like basically badgered into joining Instagram, not because people thought I should share collections um, of physical media or anything else, but just because I was you know years behind the time and people were like, why the hell don't you have an Instagram? Yeah, you should, like everyone has one. <laughs> So I finally gave it and got one. And it was funny because I was, you know, I was like, this is all of the same people that I was following on Facebook. And like, what is the difference? What is the point? Um, but then it, it only took like one or two people. I'm not going to name drop strangers or anything, mm-hmm. but like there was like one or two accounts early on that somehow got recommended to me, I guess, on my because of my like of um, my interest in horror. And um, mm-hmm. it just took like one or two people that I started following who enjoyed collecting the VHS and it just spiraled from there because it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing, like so-and-so knows so-and-so and they follow so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And before I knew it, I was like following, a, you know, 600 people who were all interested in VHS, which at that point I was like, I didn't realize. And it's funny because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm online all the time at work and every day and it's a part of my job. And, um, you know, I frequent Reddit and other 
kind of social communities, but I had no idea, um, even with all that online presence, that there was a community of people who were like this large and this, you know, passionate about collecting physical media, particularly VHS in, in Instagram's case. But um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was it was it was a, it was a surprise for sure, um, and it was cool because it definitely rekindled like. I was collecting at that time mostly shining related things, which I still do. But um, still do, of course. <laughs> that's primarily what I do. But like, it, it made me. It sort of just like reawakened this this thing because I used to collect VHS in high school and DVDs in high school and college, and um, because I, you know, having amassing a collection of movies that I liked, I thought was kind of a cool personal thing. It, it said more about who I am to to people than. You know, if someone came over and saw the movies I liked sitting on a shelf like that, I always thought that was kind of a cool personal expression. So I collected them, but I had fallen out of that for a while, and I got really mm-hmm. hardcore back into that with with this community. When I was like, "Well, there's other people who do this too," um, and for me, it's um, it's I guess I'm sure we'll get back into this in, in another episode in terms of like our personal like journeys, I guess, with with collecting physical media. But um, for me, I think a lot of it like I think so many people's uh, experiences are probably going to be um, stems from like from childhood um, like memories and childhood nostalgia and uh, a big component from my dad was like really into movies and every weekend he would Mm -hmm. go to the video store and bring home four new releases um, and it was always four Uh, so four new VHS (laughs) tapes every Friday that we would watch by Sunday and then he would return Um, and we did that throughout all of my elementary and middle school and high school years and it was awesome um so i mean that's i feel like i owe him for that purpose alone like my career like that's what got me into movies Mm -hmm. so like i don't know so collecting has like a very i don't know personal component for me yeah no no that's uh, yeah i totally understand that's awesome i mean i think my history is very similar in that you know we going to the video store was like the funnest thing in my mind when I was a kid. Um, my family wasn't nearly as into it as as your father's is. I mean, that sounds like a dream for <laughs> for new movies every weekend that you watch. Uh, um, but we went all the time, and and I remember like by the time I was twelve, my parents basically told the local video store that we would. I grew up in rural Vermont, and then we moved across the border into New Hampshire um, uh, when I was uh, like thirteen. But when we when I was 12 they told the like folks in the video store they're like you can put a note on the account that you know Brantley can rent whatever he wants it doesn't matter if it's R it doesn't matter if it's any, like what they they just knew my I like loved movies so much and it was just like yeah he's like old enough he you know he gets it it's, we're not worried that he's gonna be like I guess <laughs> you know tainted or something by like whatever and then that was just like like open the floodgates and like I would watch everything but like especially like horror and like i loved horror and like call it and sci-fi um and and you know that really just kind of started and then by the time i was 16 i got my first job in a video store so i you had to be 16 to work there and i had been hounding the same video store that i used to go to um since i was a kid um about working there and they're like well you're not 16 yet you're not 16 you know da 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 and then finally i turned 16 and i put it in an application and they were nice enough to hire me and i worked all the way through high school there and then when we went to college together i 
you know, I didn't really have like a plan, but like, you know, September rolled around or whatever when school started. And I was like, yeah, I'll just go to the video headquarters in Keene because that's like, that was like the holy grail video store. Oh, yeah. No, I was where the, it was a mom and pop shop that I worked at in high school, but video headquarters is, was, was, I said is, it's been closed since 2015, but it was like a massive video store. And, um, and Ken McAleer, who owned it, was actually really influential in the independent video store uh, business. And I worked there all four years of college. I just was thankful. I was lucky enough to walk in at a time when video stores were still going relatively strong in 2004. And they still needed, like, you could pretty much walk in with an application. And, you know, if you had any prior retail or really, in my case, over two years, two and a half years of video store experience, um, could get hired uh, to work um, you know, pretty easily kind of got put to the top of the pile, I think. So, and I, I remember in my interview, they asked like, what was like a movie recently that I really enjoyed? And it was, I think those were like one of their feeler questions. Like, is this person like, what's their taste basically? And I, I said, Bubba Hotep was uh, nice. one that I really loved recently. And I think that, I think that like sealed the deal. They're like, Oh yeah, this guy, he, he knows what's up. He's, he's, he'll fit in perfectly fine here. <laughs> yeah, that- And that was, yeah, that was a great job. I worked all four years of of college there, and then actually, when we moved back in 2013, I, I went back and started working there as a manager part time while working other library jobs. Because um, when we were down in Boston, I got my master's in library and information science. So, um, and I worked there till about six months before they closed, unfortunately. So that was a real bummer. But uh, but that's where my love of like film and then collecting came from. Because working in video stores, I could get movies so much cheaper because i would get like the employee discount for like a used movie oh right so i wasn't paying like full price for it or even like full price plus employee discount it was you know the used rate plus a discount uh the employee discount and and actually cost is one of the things i really still love about physical media you know if you want to buy um you know like a a digital movie you're going to be paying like 15 to 20 dollars for it whereas after like three or four months of something being out like there's a pretty good chance i could have come across it on dvd or blu-ray for like two to five dollars at a used store of some kind you know and it's just so much cheaper to be able to pick up physical media that way especially dvd at this point um totally it's just yeah it's like one or two bucks for most dvds that um, you find it through stores at this point, which is a, a big selling point for me. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I I don't want to move away. You you mentioned it before, but uh, you talk about how you collect The Shining. So not only is Nick a big fan of The Shining, he has uh, a massive collection of Shining material and memorabilia, uh, very lovingly referred to as the Shining. And not only that, you're like such an expert on the film. Like you've done, you've like hosted a couple screenings where you've been asked, you're like the person at the front with a microphone, like introducing the film and like talking about it because uh, of your vast knowledge. Um, that's true. I hope that's why they asked me to do it. Um, but either way, it's <laughs> been sure. a blast. Yes. Um, yeah, that's all true. I uh, really, I started, um, well, I've always liked the movie, but uh I think whenever I first saw it, it gave me nightmares that night and, and I've never looked back, but I really got into it like years after that, actually when I lived in Philly um, and you know, when I was mm. still searching for a job there, I had a lot of free time and I was reading up a lot on, um, on 
well on everything, um, anything that I was interested in. Um, I, I would read as much as I could about, and uh, I sort of revisited The Shining once, and it was just purely a coincidence that that happened to be what I saw. Or I don't remember what it was exactly. It was an article. Um, anyway, it was an article on The Shining that I read, and it, it piqued my interest in the film again, uh, and I sort of went down the rabbit hole and uh, was reading, you know, fan theories and, you know... Um, scholarly readings of the film from film experts and you know like uh, uh what you um sorry i can't think of the word um damn it sorry this is ridiculous no no it's um what do you what what is it what, it's like what is it you're why can't i think of it it's like the uh numerological readings of things there's a there's a name for it and i can't think of it it's Drive me crazy. Um, yeah, like I think the Da Vinci yeah, Code sorry. guy. <laughs> oh sure, Dan Brown. Dan Brown, like I think uh, that his character, or whatever, is what is it? I'm sorry, this is driving me crazy. Anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's totally fine. Um, <laughs> the point is that I was reading stuff, you know, um, from Bill Blakemore, who was an ABC News correspondent when the movie was released, and he wrote a very famous article about. Um, his take that the, the film was clearly Stanley Kubrick talking about the genocide of the Native Americans at the hands of the mm. European, you know, settlers in America. Um, I was reading everything from that to, um, well, yeah, numerology, um, a numerology reading on, on The Shining, which is like when people say like, well, at time code, you know, 0147, whatever, you add all of those numerals mm -hmm. together and that is this number. And then if you divide that by the number of characters in this shot, you know, it's 666 or whatever. Like, I read, like, a 200-page article on that uh, just because I thought it was batshit wow. insane and, and super interesting. So, anyway. That's a dissertation. It was a dissertation. <laughs> um, and, and it's hilarious. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, wow. But every now and then, even in, in the craziest of articles, you'll glean a little bit of trivia or knowledge or you'll see something that you've never noticed in the movie before. So, I, I just, I'll consume all of it and form my own sort of opinions on the movie. But anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying after a lot of that, I've sort of really started to appreciate um, the film on like a whole new level or several whole new levels. And, and I just think it's, it's way beyond just a horror film. I think it's just one of the most accomplished pieces of cinema ever. And, uh, and tying back to the you know, sorry, this is again, I'm going on and on, but tying back to the purpose of this podcast, one of the coolest things about that movie is that it was released in 1980, which was basically, it was released at the perfect time to have um, crossed over like every existing video format to date. Mm, so mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot to collect is, is my point. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, from CED to Laserdisc. Um, it's been on every single format out there and that really, again, was like a spark to not only just collect um, the Shining stuff, but really get into, like I discovered a bunch of movie formats that to be honest, I didn't even know existed. Like, you know, like country specific formats, um, uh, mm -hmm. you know, very short lived formats that I didn't even know uh, were a thing. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's all basically because of the Shining, which is uh, why I love it so much. No, that's that's awesome. Did it? Did The Shining get released on that? Was it Video Eight? That really tiny video format. Yep, I have. So I have a German copy on Video Eight. I have seen no evidence uh, that it came out here, but it did, and I have it. 
Interesting. Yes. Well, and and so bringing that shining uh, love, uh, your historical love for it, more uh, recently, you you picked up uh, the Shining on eight track, which we both tried digging online to find any record of, and that's like, true. Have so far found nothing yep. about it ever having even been released on on eight track. That's right. The soundtrack was recalled. I think shortly after it was released because of music licensing issues, and I've never been able to discover. Mm-hmm exactly what those licensing issues were um but mm. um I, I mean that's sort of the official quote-unquote official like wikipedia listing and all music and, and discogs both both cite that as the reason that it was pulled um and regardless of what those music licensing issues were uh it was never released on anything but what i thought was vinyl and uh and compact cassette um yeah, uh, it's never been on CD, at least in any official capacity. Uh, there's bootlegs of it, of mm-hmm. course, but um, yeah. So anyway, I just happened to see it on eight track listed on eBay, and I was trying to look into the legitimacy of it because I'd never seen that posted before. Um, and I check online for shining stuff every day. I've been doing it for like six years, so the fact that this wow. all of a sudden <laughs> showed up was was pretty exciting, and uh, it's pretty clearly yeah. legit. And uh, so yes, that is a recent acquisition. That's my most recent acquisition. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome because, yeah, Discogs didn't even have a listing for the eight track version of the soundtrack, and I'm you know I'm sure some like like a Warner Music Archive or something, uh, Atlantic Records archives or whatever probably has some like <laughs> records of it existing, but none that are like currently available online that we can find at yep. least. So it's it's like quite that's a really really interesting and impressive find. That's awesome. Oh, man. thanks. And if anyone has any information yeah. on any of that stuff, like please send it to me cuz I yeah. find it fascinating. And it's good to know. Yeah, you can uh you can email us here at the podcast at letsgetphysicalpod at gmail.com. That's letsgetphysicalpod at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that was I really, like slipped into some weird like radio announcer voice. No, that was perfect. Good plug. Um, Good plug for our show. <laughs> well, uh, so Nick, uh, do you want to? What is there anything else you want to dig into more about like us and our? I feel like we've 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 had, this has been a great intro, but I feel like we we might be talking the listener's ear off here. Uh, do anything else you want to cover before maybe we talk about what we've been kind of watching, reading, listening, consuming before we get to our interview? Um, no, I'm good. How about you? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think so. So, well, let me start off right there, man. Like, what have you been, like, consuming lately? What have you been watching, reading, listening to, anything? Um, yeah, so, well, you and I both have kids who are within one month of each other in age, yeah. um, just about to turn two. Uh, so mm-hmm. the time that I have uh, compared to, to when I was younger to, to watch and consume media is much smaller. Um so yep, I'm with yeah, you. <laughs> it's a lot of um, like we'll watch one television series at a time. My wife and I we're we're watching Brooklyn Nine Nine right now, um, which mm-hmm. is great. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. And then um, nice. on my way to and from work, I'll I'll read. So I've been reading. Um, well, lately I'm I'm rereading The Shining for the fourth time and Doctor Sleep, uh, so that the movie comes out on November eighth, the Doctor Sleep adaptation. Uh, so nice. I just wanted to to kind of revisit those. So that's what I'm in the middle of. How about you? 
Uh, let's see. I am in the middle. Uh, I'm with you. So, assuming we're not talking about the amount of Sesame Street and Doc McStuffins <laughs> I've watched, uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, I'm reading on my Kindle right now. Uh, there is like a, a horror novel by, uh, called Video Night by uh, Adam Cesare, C E S A R E. I don't know if that's 100% the right pronunciation, but that's very much like a throwback. Uh, alien horror film set in the 80s uh it's about this uh pair of friends who are having a video night at their house when they have to deal with um these aliens that will like uh essentially take over uh the human um you know shells that they have gotten into so essentially a human would swallow a seed somehow and then uh they take over that person's body basically and the the human mind that used to be there essentially like disappears and they're just a willing host for these aliens uh so it's a uh, pretty great so far i'm really enjoying it um i just actually finished listening to uh the audiobook failure is an option by h john benjamin nice. um i'd say actually yeah i love i love him a lot and it's a really it's a funny book and it's read by him which is great and i'd actually say that the bulk of my book consumption i I don't i don't call audiobooks uh reading because i think it's more of a passive um act when you listen to it rather than like actively reading um a book or or like a kindle book um so the, the the bulk of my uh book consuming comes from audiobooks because i have a job where i can listen to things whether it's podcasts or audiobooks or whatever uh, while i work so that gives me a lot more time to uh take them in than when i'm just at home uh reading um and then tv wise i i finished mindhunter season two on netflix so that that was uh pretty good i really like that series a lot i've read um a bunch of the books that john douglas has done uh both mindhunter and i think he did one called obsession if i'm remembering correctly and then um and then actually earlier this year i read the robert wrestler book the killer across the table uh robert wrestler was another fbi uh profiler um so i I have uh, like um read a few of those books and movies uh i've actually like watched more than i have in a long while this whole summer i really tried to watch um get back into horror um i was like huge into horror like i said like 12 to 22 and then there was like a real drop off from like 22 now to my you know early mid 30s here where I just wasn't I still like some of the bigger ones um but I just kind of really moved or moved away from it but I mean I used to go to horror conventions in my teens and early 20s uh, and that was awesome but I just started like rewatched all the Friday the 13th I rewatched all the screams um here's my hot take on the scream franchise scream 4 is the best of the sequels that's my <laughs> that's my um thought I, I I I liked it when it came out but I wasn't as high on it as I was on a rewatch um and i think the issue with the earlier scream sequels is that there wasn't enough time for that whole meta stuff to really sink in like scream was like an atom bomb when it landed because it was just this uh meta horror film that was commenting on horror films and like scream 2 tried to do the whole commenting on sequels thing but it was like just a couple years after the first one and so it was just almost like it was commenting on itself really uh, like that like scream was commenting on scream and then the third one's like a commentary on hollywood and stuff but i think the fourth one there was enough time had passed for it to uh be a better meta narrative um 
boy, oh boy. I don't want to just keep rambling on. But anyway, yeah, I've been getting back into watching a bunch of horror movies. And a lot of horror movies that I never had watched before that are thankfully, uh, because, you know, it's a podcast about physical media, but that are thankfully available on a number of streaming platforms. Amazon Prime has a ton of horror on it right now. Um, and that's what I've been watching a lot of this older, like, 80s horror uh, stuff on that I, I had never watched before. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, really happy to get a chance to catch a lot of that stuff um, relatively cheap. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, not to, to harp on Amazon or anything. Um, like, whatever your feelings on Amazon are, they do have a great horror selection um on on their platform mm-hmm. on prime and uh yeah i've been doing the same thing um they've like they're constantly adding new movies on there and uh and a lot of the movies that like i used to have this horror book um called uh uh i think it's called horror shows from video hound um, was the name of the publication okay. they did a bunch of like video uh release books um and mm-hmm. uh, anyway, it was called 999 um, Hair-Raising, Hellish, and Humorous Movies or something. And um, and most of my horror selections in middle and high school came from that book. Um, mm. And a lot of them, I mean, they range from commercial movies, of course, like the Scream, uh, Scream 1 and 2 at the time had, had been released. So those are in the book, of course. And um, But a lot of, I'd say probably the majority of the films in that in that book um, were either classics that were hard to find on video at the time, um, mm-hmm. or um, very obscure like seventies and eighties, uh, you know, slasher films or or whatever that would just like even if you had a mom and pop video store near you, um, just the chances of finding one of those movies is small. And that's the beauty of streaming is that like you know it's like having a mom and pop video store with in infinite amount of space to keep their library so there's thousands of movies instead of hundreds in the horror section so i've seen a lot of movies that i was trying to track down for months or years when i was in high school um just pop up like unceremoniously on amazon you know like but it's a huge deal for me (laughs) yeah no same here i mean and this whole idea between like physical media collection and like streaming and the the age of the internet that we live in now i mean it really kind of just reminds me of um so i'm an archivist by uh for the listeners um and i work as a, at a college right now as, as the college archivist and you know it there nothing will beat the the internet and um in terms of like ease of access so like streaming and everything has made it just so much easier to find and watch and consume um uh, all, all like all of these films like you were just talking about that we like it would have taken forever to find uh, had we not had those those outlets and so it, it, a lot of people sometimes when they're not you know as educated in how we work in an archive would say like well if you've digitized something why do you even keep the original copy right and so you know part of that is like yes like there's nothing beats the ease of access of having something digital but at the same time something that's digital at least in the in the archive world that's not going to last nearly as long as a paper document or a piece of film or a photograph will in a properly temperature controlled humidity controlled environment uh in acid-free 
you know, linen folders and boxes uh, in an archive. So, you know, that you hang on to that because format obsolescence in the digital world is going to happen so much faster than that piece of paper is going to deteriorate. And so then if that happens, you just would rescan that document to have it be digital again. Um, so that's a little bit of a, of a tangent, but I mean, there's, there's benefits, I think, to how it ties back into this is benefits both in the streaming world and the physical media collection world. And we're not against streaming at all. We love it actually, but we also just happen to be really big physical media collectors as well. Totally. I think you just actually touched upon like, uh, and you, you're, you're coming at this from obviously a much more professionally, um, trained, trained vantage point. But, uh, that's something I often think about is yeah, like digital well even in in you know professionally what i do like editing um you know video file formats and codecs change so rapidly um oh yeah that, that you know I, all it takes is like you know apple to release a new os for a particular app or video codec to no longer be supported and then whatever files you have mm -hmm. in that format if you don't have in some other format you're out of luck that's it um and it happens so quickly. So I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's something that I think about a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, it, it, if you tie that even into like the theater world too, it's like the very few theaters now show, actually project film. You know, it's all like, uh, what are they? essentially like hard drives that come in that you just like plug in and then, you know, it goes from there. But, you know, film, we think of it as this obsolete format, but it is one of the most stable formats in the world. I mean, as long as you're on safety stock film, not like the nitrate that was used back in the day, as long as you're like on safety stock film, I mean, if you keep that in proper, uh, like film archive conditions, I mean, you're looking at, you know, maybe even a couple hundred years before there's even really any like real noticeable deterioration of those films of that film stock. So you know, I know with everything being shot digitally now, it's it's difficult. But I mean, really, you know, it it might behoove a lot of um, studios and stuff to to rip those onto onto actually like thirty five millimeter film to store it, rather than trying to keep a digital format that they have to constantly uh, adjust and and tweak for from format obsolescence. Yeah, and and truthfully, it should be done the other way around. I think like what you're saying um, is is accurate. Like the thirty five millimeter film will last forever and digital can be used you know if anything to, to help extend that life even longer like if, if it did start to deteriorate then you have um you know you have uh um sorry sorry like telecine experts and, and color correction people who can go in and and fix any of those imperfections mm -hmm. um when they when they do a new transfer um so yeah. it it lasts forever and um and then as tech gets better you know like if they have to retransfer it at a higher resolution you just go back to the mm -hmm. to the original print and then touch it up again and, and you're golden. Which they just did yeah. with The Shining. Yeah. So and I saw that the transfer oh. was I've now seen that movie in thirty five millimeter uh, and in the new four K transfer. And as much as it's awesome to see an old print of it, I've never seen detail in that movie like I have with that new transfer. Like it brought back things that were totally invisible in any print or um, you know, video copy of that movie that I've ever seen. It was like watching it Oh, for the first time again that's really cool i i think was it was it did they scan it at 4k and then put it out at 4k or did they do like a 6 or 8k and then 
down, not downgraded. That's not the right word, but um, oh, yeah, uh, comp- like compress it essentially to a four. That's not that's not the right either. Word. You, you you know more the technical side of like the editing and film world. No, than you're you're hundred percent right. I actually don't know. I have to. I think it was a four K scan from the original negative. I have to go double check. But they had um, okay. They had like Leon Vitali, who was Stanley Kubrick's personal assistant, and and Steven Spielberg were involved with like. Um, and they had like Warner Brothers has like a staff colorist. Um, uh, just their studio has like a staff colorist who's very famous who also worked on on touching it back up. So it was like top notch nice. talent. It wasn't like a quick transfer. No, that's awesome. I, the reason I asked is just because I I think I might be wrong. I think thirty five millimeter you can do essentially up to like a six k, and then seventy millimeter you can do like eight to ten. Um, I th- I don't know. I, I, that's I think what I what I had heard, and I may just be misremembering. But I from what I understand, sometimes um, when they're because the technology has just gotten so much better now, they're doing like six K or even eight K scans of films, and then essentially you know downgrading them to four K because that's the highest like home video format there is. Uh, the four K. Right. Now. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I'd, I've heard something similar. And I don't remember the exact specs, but I think it was like. 35 millimeter film essentially has the equivalent native resolution to like something that was shot on like you know 6k um today okay so like i think the amount of detail that you could get like you can obviously scan 35 millimeter at like you know 40k in the future but it's diminishing Mm -hmm. returns you're not going to get any more detail out of it than the film holds um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I'd read some, probably the same thing that you had. It was, I think, like 6K for 35 millimeter and, and perhaps beyond for 70, of course. Okay. No, that's interesting. Yeah, so this, yeah, I think we could go down a whole other rabbit hole talking about yeah. the difference in, in film. And, uh, you know, I mean, it obviously, you know, it's it's so much easier and cost more cost effective for a lot of film productions to shoot on digital. So, of course, that's what they're going to go to. And then I you know, talk about the ease of editing and like you don't have to worry about transferring and looking at dailies, things like that. It's just all like readily available. So I don't think that the idea of film film, I don't think is ever going to come back when it comes to like the filmmaking process. I guess what I'm talking about is like in the film storage process from an archivist perspective it's so much better to have that on film although i don't think most studios are interested in doing that either um i think they pretty much just want to keep their digital versions and and like go from there um which is unfortunate and it makes you hope that um all of these studios that are keeping them in their archives are on top of their format obsolescence and making sure that they're uh reformatting and, and transferring them to other formats as as it goes along yeah absolutely yeah. Well, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent, Nick. But uh, what do you say? Should we should we go to our our interview here for this this episode? Yeah, let's do it. Um... Awesome. Yeah. So we we were very lucky uh, to get a chance to sit down with uh, Nick's coworker, Sean Mayman, uh, another editor and uh, graphic design. No, not graphic designer. Motion. Motion. Yeah, he's designer? a motion graphics artist at uh, at our company. Gotcha awesome yeah and uh we sat down talked with him i wasn't sure you know what he i I knew very little about sean before we sat down to to talk with him but it was actually really interesting to hear um not just what he collects but the certain type of format that he likes to collect so i hope everyone enjoys it and uh here is our interview with uh nick's co-worker sean mayman And 
today we are joined by an editor and a motion designer in New York, uh, and also a big collector of VHS, uh, Nick's uh, co-worker, uh, Sean Mayman. Sean, how are you? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Doing wonderful. Thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we could work it out. It it was a uh, pretty easy to meet up with you, seeing how you and Nick work together. So <laughs> nice, easy uh, connection there. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So um, I guess we'll just start this off. I mean, it's kind of pretty free flowing. I don't think we had any kind of you know things nailed down, but you know, I, I, at least I'm interested and Nick, feel free to chime in whenever, but I'm curious sort of how, how you first kind of got into physical media. I know a lot of us grew up with video stores and things like that, but were your family collectors at all? Or was that something that kind of you started that kind of collecting of physical media? Um, I think it wasn't so much a family driven thing but i like you mentioned i kind of grew up with vhs tapes and like watching movies in that format with like a vcr and the whole physical element of it and uh then as that kind of faded away and i got older i moved away from that and collecting and everything and then Mm -hmm. um there was like a consignment shop that opened up on like the main street of my neighborhood and they had like an old like eight millimeter uh player that had like a few like reels of like old serial like batman shows that you could like buy and kind of like play at home on this little projector and Mm -hmm. the projector didn't work super well but i like brought it somewhere to kind of see if they could get it in working order and they got it working pretty well and i kind of fired up like an old like elvis or costello little eight millimeter reel thing on it and um i just was super interested in that experience and the whole like tactile like feeding the film into the projector and then from there i kind of was like oh this reminds me a lot of like when i was growing up in vhs tapes and that kind of was the whole reawakening into the like physical media world and since then it's been like a lot more vhs and stuff but that was kind of the beginning i think that's uh that's really really cool i see projectors all the time when i'm in thrift stores and it's like I sort of want to pick them up to to have them, but at the same time, it's like I don't have any eight millimeter or sixteen millimeter or anything. But I'm really fascinated with that because I think, and you would probably know more about this than I do, seeing as how you you had some eight millimeter. But didn't they used to do like basically like um, shortened like versions of um, feature films on eight millimeter that were only like ten minutes long or something, just whatever they could fit on the eight millimeter reel. I know they did like serials like you were mentioning, but I thought they did like trimmed down versions of movies even, like kind of like a highlights clip. Yeah, that's like exactly a couple that I had were like, so there were like Elvis and Costello, like short film, like here's a film in like five minutes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there were like serials like Batman and Robin and they'd be like 15 little 10 minute episodes. And then there would be like cut downs of movies. So like. I forget the name of this movie, but I had this one, I don't know if it was like The Incredible Shrinking Man or something, but it's just this guy somehow shrinks. I don't know if it's ever explained super clearly or if it's magic or something. And then he's like in his house, like dealing with being small and like his cat is trying to fight him and all this ridiculous stuff. (laughs) But basically I got that and it was just like only like the action scenes. So there was no real like explanation or dialogue or background of what was going on it was just this little dude like running away from his cat and that's basically like 
they were just cutting it down to like oh here's the fun parts that people are buying this for so yeah it was just mm-hmm. like a highlight reel of like here's the crazy like similar to like youtube now where it would be like the 10 craziest scenes from this like movie or show but instead it was like a physical reel of film yeah that's really really cool i uh I was never, uh, I never worked in a movie theater. I never worked as like a projectionist, even when we were at film school together, Nick. Uh, and so like, I, I'm very kind of interested in the whole, that, that having to get that hands on with the media, it's one thing to put a tape into, you know, your VCR. It's a whole nother thing to actually thread film through a projector to watch. Uh, do you still have the eight millimeter projector and do you still collect eight millimeter? I still have it, but I think I've kind of fallen off on collecting those because I mm-hmm. just sort of just recently, actually, like once I moved to New York and kind of was out of school and stuff, I've started kind of and I've had more space to like have physical media. I think I've started getting more into the like VHS, actually like tracking them down and collecting them. And I have places I can kind of like display them and stuff like that now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've kind of fallen off a little bit on the eight millimeter. I think um, to your point, Brantley, uh, that in terms of like those cut down versions, and and Sean, I didn't realize you still had your projector, but I don't. I, I assume it's not in New York with you, like you were saying. But uh, I've never actually been big on collecting eight millimeter films, only because I don't have the means to play them uh, currently. Although I know the projectors are pretty easy to come by, and, and someday I'll probably pick one up when I have more space. But um, the those trimmed down versions of films like the highlight reel versions of films those continued into the 80s i think the late 80s um possibly even the 90s and i think they were bigger in europe from what i can tell but like yeah i have a copy of um the alien release it's on super 8 so there's like there's a soundtrack like optical sound or whatever um i believe um and I know a lot of them were released without it, but yeah, it's, it's a 10 to 15 minute essentially highlight reel of like the best scenes in Alien. And I think there's definitely a really popular one for Star Wars. I see it floating around all the time on eBay and um, and they're, they're pretty cheap. They're inexpensive. They must have released a bunch. Um, they're not hard to come by, uh, but um, yeah, I'd love to watch them because I'm curious if it's supposed to like actually tell the whole story or if it's literally just like, here's a collection of scenes with no explanation as to how they fit together. Like if you've never seen this film good luck um it's interesting like it's it's just a very like it's a very bizarre um i guess of its time sort of thing that you would never ever see again yeah yeah it's actually surprising to me that you say that they would go on even well into the 80s just with the you know the rise of of home video it, it's surprising that they would have lasted even that long that's why I'm, I'm curious about like the cultural aspect of of where that continued to be popular because um certainly like if you had um a large install base of consumers who had you know eight millimeter projectors um you know even to project their own home film uh i guess it stands to reason that you would release some commercial stuff on them but yeah like like you said you're you're getting into beta and vhs and, and laserdisc days and and those were pretty prevalent so I'm, I'm wondering if there are like parts of the world that were just um that where those things hadn't been adopted uh you know quite as yeah. as much as they were here so yeah those things continued yeah. for quite a while i feel like that could be a whole segment where we dive into the the history of the eight millimeter and super eight and and all that yeah for sure <laughs> it is cool I, I didn't uh, know they were around that long either, but I know they kind of like, I remember reading about it when I first got a couple of like, why did they make these and like, why are they these cut downs of movies? And it was like a, 
I, I think I read they had started to be really big during like the Great Depression because it was like a cheaper way for people to have like oh like we can watch this at home but it's not like a full movie or I don't know like you don't have to like go to the theater or have like a whole roll of film or it's like a tiny little cheap thing or serial kind of like a magazine but huh. yeah interesting yeah that definitely makes sense I mean you know especially back then in the Depression uh well sean let me actually kind of tie back into this you said that um you said this was a few years ago that you you found that eight millimeter projector and then started collecting is that right yeah it was probably like middle school so like a, a oh okay so longer a, oh, longer than that okay oh yeah that was like the the way way back and then it was still a while after that before i got into vhs and other stuff but yeah, and I still do have, like, the 8mm projector, but I just haven't really, like, dusted it off or grabbed any new stuff in a while. It's kind of been neglected a little bit, I think, but... Yeah. Sean, yeah. I'm well, curious. No, oh, sorry, sorry yeah. Brantley. No, 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 wanna... no, go for it. Go for it. Um, I, I just wanted to, to butt in, essentially, to ask, because um, I didn't realize you were talking about that long ago either. Um, like, this is in middle school, so presumably, I don't know how how interested you were in film as a career at that point um, or how much experience you'd had, um, you know, handling film and stuff. So I was curious, like, did you buy this um, just purely because you were interested in something you found at the, at the store and you wanted to, to give it a shot? Had you had an experience handling film separately? Like, did your parents, I guess what I'm really getting at is like, did you, your family or did anyone else um, you knew growing up still have like an eight millimeter, um, movie camera at home that they used for like home movies and that they would show um you know they would take out and show old home movies and stuff because i know a lot of people growing up that i knew um you know their parents had had grown up shooting eight millimeter home videos and did that up through you know my friends childhoods and they would watch those periodically and i'm just wondering if that was sort of your experience or if it was just purely you know you saw something and, and you taught yourself how to use it or whatever yeah i think like at the time it was more like I was somewhat interested in film and like maybe not as a career but I was like starting to want to watch movies all the time and getting into like oh like how deep into this can I get and starting to kind of see how much there was to it and then I think we went to that like consignment shop and I saw that and I was like oh this is like a historical element of this whole genre and whole art form and uh, something about it and just like the look of it was really cool so yeah it might have just been kind of like i saw it and was like this looks awesome and like i want to check it out and see if i can get it to work kind of thing because i think i would also just kind of do that like i would go into places like and just find like the goofiest things sometimes and just be like this is awesome and i'm gonna like do something with it and then it would just kind of like sit around but in this case it was actually something i could like make use of or kind of actually fix up in a way but um I do think, like, since I got it, my dad has mentioned that, like, he had come across some, like, old home videos that might be playable on it, but there, there's, like, in storage in, like, my grandma's house somewhere and, like, buried. So, but I am interested in, like, that kind of element more now of, like, the kind of tying it into, like, family history and using it for that purpose, too. But, yeah, originally I think it was just kind of, like, me being a teenager and being like this looks cool and i want to like play with it but yeah yeah i think you're we might be getting ahead of ourselves and um 
you know, sorry, I don't want to get too off topic, but I think you're, you're touching on something that I think is really interesting about collecting uh, physical media, and that's like non-commercial releases and, and things with actual history to them that you know means something to a very specific small group of people um, in this case home videos you see collections a lot of um, you know old VHS tapes um, old beta tapes that were used either for home recording on, on television or or even just home videos um, being sold on eBay as blanks essentially um, but I know a lot of people buy those um, just to see what kinds of, of things they'll find on them um, never mind recording over it uh, and I've, I've seen that a few times. You see lots of, you know, 20, 30 rolls of um, Super 8 film from someone's private collection. I think it would just be so cool to to buy one of those on eBay someday just to kind of tear through it and see what you're finding. Yeah, and they do, they do like found footage festivals and home movie festivals too, I think, right? And I think that those may be things that are found, you know, whether in lots like that or just at thrift stores or whatever, which is pretty cool too. Yeah, that's like my favorite it's more like vhs than the eight millimeter stuff but my favorite stuff to kind of try to track down or collect whether it's like ebay or thrift stores or whatever or like found vhs tapes or things that you would see in like the found footage festival or just like things that weren't really like a wide release but were maybe like some student filmmakers making something or just like random friends with a camera or like conspiracy theory people like putting out these like zine type videos of like things they've seen on the news or something but that stuff is always mm -hmm. super intriguing to me because it's like the physical media element is cool and like actually like having that physical thing but there's also that element of like maybe that doesn't exist in a lot of other forms of media that you can just kind of find this thing and be like looking into a little like scene from somebody's life or like this thing that like is so rare because like there's really only one of it or something i think that's a really cool like it's a unique experience yeah absolutely so uh let's kind of go back so that was middle school you were saying that you found the the eight millimeter projector were you collecting other things as a kid i mean like baseball cards or comics or anything like that or or was that kind of really the impetus that started it off for you that was probably the big one i would like get just things i thought were like interesting like little trinkety things if i was in like a thrift store like my friends and i would go to thrift stores a decent amount like there mm -hmm. were a couple in our neighborhood and like it started out as just like oh it's like a place to get clothes or something and then i would like see like a old like kind of these trinkety things that maybe you'd see in like as seen on tv ads or something just like weird absurd like for some reason i was like i want to see what i can like do with this or if i can make this thing work like it used to or like old like radio things and stuff like that and a lot of times it would just be like oh okay. this is just kind of broken beyond repair but i think the projector was the first big thing where i was like oh like i have this like connection to this past form of me like i actually got it to work and it's like a connecting line to that i can like play all these tapes back and stuff now and it was like the key sort of moment i think but yeah i think that was the first big nice. one. Oh, that's awesome um so then you said you started collecting vhs how long of there was a gap between that uh eight millimeter projector and the vhs collecting um probably a pretty long time like it was probably i was back visiting from college and i had still during that period like collected a few 
eight millimeter things from time to time or if I would come across them. But I think Mm -hmm. I was visiting from college and we were kind of like my parents were moving out of like the house I grew up in and we're kind of like trying to get rid of some stuff from storage. And I came across a few VHS tapes and one, uh, The Black Cauldron, which is like a Disney movie Mm -hmm. that was on VHS. And I watched it like a hundred times as a kid. It was like my favorite movie. And I think, like, seeing that kind of, like, triggered the memories of, like, VHS tapes and, like, putting stuff into the VCR and, like, the ads that played before. And, like, so maybe, like, midway through college, I was like, oh, I kind of want to, like, go on eBay or go on Amazon or whatever and kind of, like, see if I can find, like, this movie I remember from my childhood that my parents don't have anymore or whatever. And then I think it kind of snowballed from there into the, okay. like, found VHS and things of that sort. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I think... I think nostalgia plays a huge factor, especially when it comes to, to VHS collecting. Um, and I mean, I know it does for me. I mean, although personally, I'll say that the things that I'm generally collecting on VHS are more like horror, cult, sci-fi. Um, and I mean, now it's just like <laughs> the eBay prices for some of the VHS horror films have gotten like crazy because uh, they're so in demand now. It's uh, it's really surprising. But wh- when it comes to VHS, are, are you collecting like you said, the, the films from your childhood that you uh, loved watching when you grew up, or are there specific genres or specific um, things that you look for when you're collecting VHS? Um, I think it maybe went through like a few phases in a way. Like when I first started, it was just like, let me get like whatever nostalgic movies I like vividly remember from my childhood, like the Black mm-hmm. Cauldron and stuff like that. Like the first ones I would get were those. And then I think it became, like, classic movies or, like, ones movies I loved, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, like, mm-hmm. The Godfather and whatever, just movies that I liked a lot that I didn't really have any nostalgia for, but I was like, I just want to, like, watch this on VHS, like, and watch it again, but in a different format kind of thing. And now, mm-hmm. these days, it's been a lot of, like, um, like, animation. Like, I've been trying to find some cool, like animations some of which maybe i haven't seen but like uh i just got it's like a ridiculous movie but this movie like heavy metal i got that on vhs because i'm just like it just seems like such like a that era thing and style of animation and i kind of can draw some inspiration from that and then uh the other big time one these days has been like the found vhs or things where i'm like either it's like some kind of home movie or weird like recording of a public access show or like mm-hmm. these conspiracy tapes people make stuff like that so i think that's like the current thing i've been seeking out a lot oh interesting so you've really gotten into that that aspect of collecting so i'm curious when you get like a found uh footage vhs uh are you digitizing and putting online is it just for your collection um what do you what do you do with them i haven't digitized them yet They're, i've kind okay. of I kind of have wanted to like because a lot of them I'm like this may just be like the only one of these that's ever existed and mm-hmm. sometimes they're just so crazy or like just so I'm like I can't believe this is like a thing that nobody else has ever seen in a way kind of thing that I kind of want to like put yeah. it out there and be like hey somebody else should because that's like the two guys who run like the found footage festival I think sort of like they find these just like crazy things that pretty much no one has ever seen because it's just like one person or one show that on public access that was for one night but they like digitize it and put it up on the internet and are like make it available for a lot of people and i think that's kind of cool if you come across something that you think is sort of like odd or special to kind of like put it out there but 
as of now, I've just kind of been collecting them because I like see something and be like, that sounds ridiculous or cool or, and I want to see what it's all about. Now, have you ever been tricked by like the spine label writing that you think it's something crazy like that and it turns out to be something completely different? Yeah, there have been a couple things where I'm like, this is going to be like some dude, like a, a lot of, or the first ones I would get would be these like conspiracy ones because they were so easy to come by like a bunch of these people mm. would just like put together a tape and so, like it would be like here's all my evidence that aliens are real or something and it would just be one guy with like a camera and like a computer and just like doing an investigation or whatever and i was like i think that was like the gateway into the found vhs stuff but mm-hmm. i think there have been a few times where i like come across something and be like that sounds like a super crazy like it's gonna be so intriguing to watch and then it'll just be like a lecture like somebody just giving a lecture at a podium and i'm like oh that's not what i expected but um that i think that's the most like duped i've been or whatever but so interesting so what what would you say is the most interesting of the found footage finds you've you've discovered so far uh i think as of yet i got this one called alien trails and it's part two but i haven't been able to ever find part one and or I don't even know if there is one or what the case is, but the front cover is just like this, like a bunch of construction paper that was cut out and like scanned to look like a one image, like a collage of construction paper, basically with like an alien in a desert. And like the whole tape is like this guy in like Nevada. And he's like, it starts out with him just in his living room, like laying out all these like news things he's seen or clips from tv and whatever and then later he's like out in the desert and like touching rocks and stuff because he's like oh i have psychic powers and i can tell like from this rock that there was like an alien spaceship here and it was just like such an intriguing thing to watch because there are parts where i'm like this seems almost like it's like a mockumentary or something but Mm -hmm. then there there are parts from like i can't tell if this is totally serious or fictionalized or if he actually thinks he'll believe this or if he believes it, but it was, I just remember I watched the whole thing through like, and I was just like this, I can't tell what's real or not, but that was pretty intriguing. Wow. So we got to, yeah. well, you know, I, maybe we'll see, we can put it out to any of our listeners when this eventually comes out, that if anyone has alien trails, part <laughs> one, to, to contact us you know all, all 12 listeners that we have or you know whatever if you find an alien trails part one let us know because we'll we'll get it to sean somehow <laughs> yeah i'd be i'd be intrigued to see what came before part two yeah yeah no that sounds really really crazy and interesting so i i mean i guess uh nick do you have any any other kind of questions here i was gonna move on to something else but i want to if you've got anything in this vein i don't want to skip ahead no 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 um yeah no by all means um i'm curious what you have what you have on tap here oh no i mean i was just curious so you know we, we've talked about your kind of history of collecting and I'm sort of interested, you know, Sean, and what, you know, maybe your thoughts are on, on this kind of VHS collection craze that sort of kind of swept, you know, I guess our community in the past, like, you know, five, ten years or so. I, I kind of have my idea of why, like, VHS collecting has become so much bigger than it used to be, but I, I'm, I'm curious, like, if you have any thoughts, Sean. Um, So in the sense of, like, why it is, or just kind of, like, what I think of like if i like it kind of thing well 
Well, I guess I mean more the why, I guess, because you know we, oh, okay. you know, you know, because I think you know you're on here because you definitely, you, you know, you do like collecting, just like Nick and I do. Um, oh yeah. But I, yeah, I guess I'm kind of curious if you have you know theories, I guess, on why it's become so so big lately. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I guess I've like thought about it, and I think even Nick and I maybe have talked about it. But I, I think maybe it's like there's so much media now whether it's like shows or movies or things that are either like adapted from films or books from that time or are kind of like stranger things like made to look like they're of that time mm-hmm. and i i just get a feeling that maybe it's a combination of like people that are really nostalgic for that media and like are like i remember like kind of like me where i was like oh, i remember having this movie on vhs and watching it on vhs and i want to like mm-hmm. kind of relive that feeling or go back to that era in a way and then mm-hmm. combined with people that are like, oh, I've like maybe never even had a VHS player, but like I want to like see what it's all about, like because like I saw this show that had it, and it's almost like seeing like me with the the projector, like having this experience of something that you never really experienced before, like a form of viewing media. But I feel like that would be my like general hunch. But yeah, I I. I th- that's essentially kind of my thoughts as well. I think we we have a generation now who grew up with physical media before um, before the internet kind of took over, and now that generation has become in their early to mid thirties or so, and is at that age where they have the means and the funds to go back and collect the things from their youth that they um, really loved and cherished. And um, and then that has that nostalgic pull because they watch these films on VHS, you know, um, you know. I remember watching all these horror movies when I was like, basically like twelve to like twenty one, twenty two. I was just like a fiend for all film, but like horror in general. And I remember watching every single one of the Fridays and every single one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets and every single one of the Halloweens on VHS, um, you know, before DVD had become um, the prominent format. So I know. You know, for me, when I look at my particular collection interest um, into VHS specifically, um, it's that's why I think it's primarily tailored to horror and cult and things like that because those were the things I was watching um, at those at those ages when VHS was still king. What about yeah. you, Nick? What do you think? Um, you know, I think it's all of those things. I think um, I was just thinking you know fads are always circular um and you know vinyl came back and of course you can't make the same Mm -hmm. argument that you make with vinyl like a vinyl sounds better you're not going to make that argument about vhs looking better than um yeah (laughs) than the contemporary alternatives but um there's certainly a nostalgia factor and i think it was um it is about our generation and and a generation you know uh before us growing up in that time and, and having those memories of not just collecting VHS, but those films. Like you look at things like um, when Super 8 came out and J.J. Abrams was making this sort of callback to, to the Amblin movies from the 80s. And then Stranger Things was like a callback to the Amblin movies of the 80s. And you think about those movies and you think about watching them on VHS and, and collecting them on VHS. And I think your point about horror is, is well taken because um, there's a social aspect to VHS at, at, and any physical media, I think, um, that you don't get today was like I feel like streaming is something that people do sort of you know by themselves in isolation essentially like in a darkened basement it's just them and they can stream and binge and whatever um 
but when you were watching physical media, you would you would make an event of it. You would someone would rent Halloween, and you'd get a bunch of friends together to watch it on like a dark night, like you know, in the woods mm. or something. Like that was a that was a social thing to do, um, you know. And, and it wasn't as easy as everyone just like you know there was one copy at the local video store. So if someone rented Halloween, you couldn't all just like oh you know, Halloween releases this Friday, let's all just like stream it. That um, doesn't work that way. And mm-hmm. and, um, and my, some of my fondest memories of of horror but really just movies in general are like you know having a sleepover when i was in sixth grade and like watching a really scary movie or whatever um that's uh you know that i i don't get that anymore when i collect vhs obviously i'm not collecting it to have a viewing party in you know Mm. um you know my friend's basement or something but um but it reminds me of that you know seeing the seeing the um the box art and stuff reminds me of, of going to my local video store and like staring at the horror section, which was like the biggest section. And it was all just, um, you know, it was like 50 cent a night rentals or something. And, um, uh, the big box horror and all of that stuff. Um, but, uh, also I think there's a, uh, for me at least, and I, I think this probably holds true for a lot of people of our generation. There's like a sense of, um, a lot a loss of a sense of ownership with with digital media um, because you don't own any of it you're licensing it from a company and like i like having something on my shelf because a i can just like go look at it and it's cool to to sort of amass a collection and then see that collection grow in physical space um but then there's also that sense that like you know somewhat like whatever like this big corporation can't get greedy and, and take this away from me they'd have to come into my house and, and like physically rip it from my hands um there's something appealing about that to me yeah no same here i mean that's that's one of the big reasons that i've always collected physical media too and why i don't really purchase things digitally the the only things my wife and i purchase digitally are we've cut cable so it's just shows that we want to watch and not wait you know nine to 12 months before they're on a streaming platform um so you know we'll you know we watch like better call Saul or whatever so we'll pay the 20 bucks for the that season or whatever digitally um but you're yeah you're absolutely right that's one of the big reasons that i collect physical blu-rays and not um (laughs) you know buying digital movies only uh, despite the fact that it takes up more room in my house because i feel that sense of ownership whereas i've never felt that with any of the digital um things i have um and i think there was even like a washington post article recently which was saying that you know why physical media was important because it protected from corporate censorship um you know like a whether a film or show was released in one way and then they essentially just change it on the streaming service that it's on and then all of a sudden that's the only version now that exists you know that's interesting yeah, and, you know, I mean, the big thing that it makes me think of, of course, is, you know, Song of the South by Disney, which uh, was released on VHS, I believe on Laserdisc, too, although I'm not 100% sure. There's but, a Laserdisc, yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. it's the original cut or whatever. Oh, yeah. and so But then, of course, it's never been released on DVD or any other, like, format beyond that, and I have a hard time believing Disney Plus would ever put it on a streaming platform. Um cool. Yeah. So, you know, and of course, well, Disney's sort of an interesting company because they have their whole marketing campaign, which is like, it goes back in the vault, right? So it's like that whole idea where they're, even their marketing is about like hiding their, <laughs> their, uh, their, um, creations, I guess, their, their, their films, um, and only releasing at certain times. 
Yeah, I mean, that's true. There's like the idea of limiting what they release, although they obviously will double dip and triple dip um, on every format. Oh, yeah. But like, yeah, there's that like maybe less now, especially with their streaming service. But Disney always had yeah. like it was an event when they would re-release like The Lion King on DVD. That was a big mm-hmm. deal. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I think you're talking about like that the Star Wars George Lucas phenomenon where it's like there's an interesting sense of ownership like well first of all whose film is it like is it george lucas's film or do the fans Mm -hmm. own it now you know because they've made it what it is and it's like when he starts changing things in star wars and they start releasing only the new versions um yeah it's like these old forms of media are the only ways to watch those original cuts the way that you saw them when you were growing up um Mm -hmm. it's i don't and I don't know. It's it's really you could debate that for a long time, and I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. But like, who does own Star Wars? Who does own you know yeah. ET, um, which you know Spielberg changed um, when they re-released it? Uh, and is it okay for like the filmmaker? And it's one thing for the filmmaker, I guess. Also, like I I can see an argument for being like, well, George Lucas created this, and he should have some say as to like what version is a definitive version and what's canon and and you know what is available to people and what's not um and i would accept that argument sooner than i would accept being like well disney bought the franchise and they own this thing now so they can do whatever they want with it um because i'd sooner defend you know an artist than a corporation but all the same it's like do either of them really own it anymore like who who does it really belong to and mean the most to yeah that's quite the philosophical question you're proposing it's sort of the difference between corporate ownership and intellectual property ownership and like artistic ownership and then like you know fandoms ownership i guess of you know which is its own tricky you know thing but star wars is also like a really interesting one to bring up anyway because i think even before that hit home video changes had been made it was originally star wars when it first came to theaters and then in its multiple releases it was I think Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope yep. before it even hit home video. So there has been like so many incremental changes even before, you know, he came and and did the digital effects and changed like uh, aspects of the film. The the ones that the fans really complain about. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they did that with like Blade Runner. I think the theatrical cut um, was sort of. I think what people refer to as the theatrical cut these days was still actually a little bit like it has the voiceover that everyone panned and hated, mm-hmm. but. Um, I'm pretty sure there was some violence like reinserted back in that was not in the actual theatrical release. Um, so, yeah, I'm not an expert on Blade Runner, so I can't. That's maybe not the best example, but like it's interesting. Does that original cut still exist anywhere? But on, I mean, my favorite movie, The Shining, I'll talk about constantly on this podcast, I'm sure. Um, but there's that deleted ending, and like, you know, that actually did release in theaters for for one weekend in May of 1980, and like, no mm. one knows if it still exists and. Um, yeah. there's a handful of people who, who saw that and can describe it and you know there's like some storyboard continuity things left over but like those will die off with people if that film is never recovered it's just I don't know physical media is just so fascinating everything about it yeah I mean it's, it's possible they exist in physical form in like a film archive somewhere but if the you know studio still owns it and is never going to release those scenes or those cuts of the film you know then i guess it creates a philosophical question of like you know does it really exist and then kind of ties into that ownership question sure yeah exactly because you know 
Interesting. Well, we've kind of gone off on a little bit of a tangent here. We did. We did. <laughs> so, I don't, Sean, you've been very quiet lately as Nick oh, and I no. have just jabber, jabbered about. No. So, uh, no, I was intrigued. Let's throw some more questions back to you. Um, well, I, well, you know, I, I, I realized that there was a question I think that we maybe intended to ask at the beginning, at least when I, we put together like a little Google Docs. But well, what have you been watching or listening or reading to lately? Um... And it does not have to be physical media. This, you know, whether it's like streaming stuff, because you know, I think on this podcast, you know, we don't, we love streaming. You know, we just happen to also love physical media collection. So, you know, it, what what have you been consuming lately in any format? Um, I think the big one, which I guess is more of a category of thing, but I've been getting into like a old horror and sci-fi like books, and oh. I've been trying to like. I've been trying to like go on a uh, eBay and when I like read a book, find like the oldest, coolest design cover I can find. Like I just read Dune and like the new Dune cover is kind of like, eh, whatever. But the old one, it would be all this like epic, like sci-fi, like hand painted artwork stuff. And so I've been mm-hmm. trying to find those and then read that. But yeah, I've been reading like a bunch of Stephen King and trying to get some of his like older editions of books with like the big, crazy stranger things esque like, or well, I guess Stranger Things took it for him, but that big, like, text up top. And then, yeah, I was reading some Dune and uh, just finished that. And then watching, I guess, I've been trying to finish The Sopranos has been a big one. Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Yeah, I think that's a, a big stuff recently that I, I guess over the summer I've been getting into nice no that's awesome i can actually picture the dune cover that you're describing i know exactly which one you're referring to that hand-painted cover that that uh that it used to have it was definitely on the paperback it might have been on one of like the early hardcover editions as well are you going to continue on with the dune franchise i think so i think i'm gonna i tend to like start something and then kind of switch to something else and then switch back so i think i'm gonna get the others but maybe not read them right away but yeah yeah like that and yeah. also, like, uh, they're, they're adapting that again in, like, I don't know, twenty end of 2020 or something. So I was, like, kind of trying to get ahead on, like, catching up because I had never read it before. So I was like, oh, I got to know what's up for the next ad- adaptation. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, no, that's I think it's Dennis Villeneuve or I don't know exactly the pronunciation of his last name. So I'm very excited because I'm, I'm a fan of his. Um, and uh, I, I can recommend the first three books of Dune. I, I tend to i've tried to go beyond that but i always jump off after those first three <laughs> that's a so lot of what i've heard yeah yeah a lot of people yeah. i've heard are like the first three are amazing and then just meh the rest is whatever. Yeah. but yeah 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 well the first one is by far the best in my in my opinion i think it's diminishing returns with the first two sequels and then beyond that but at least the first two i think are definitely still worth your your time that you would put into them um awesome man that's awesome i uh Nick, I got a couple questions I was going to ask, but if if you have any, feel free to jump in. Um, yeah, no, I go on, go ahead. Uh, if I if I think of anything, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I assume, but I don't I don't want to assume that uh, I was going to ask what your favorite form of physical media collect is. I would assume maybe VHS, but maybe you'd you'd surprise me and give me something else instead. Uh, yeah. I mean, these days it's probably VHS. I think that's like what I focus the most 
time on or kind of put the most research into and then aside from mm-hmm. that uh vinyl but not as like intensively as the vhs just kind of like if there's music i like and i'm like oh it'd be cool to have on vinyl kind of thing yeah. but not really seeking out like more rare things or things of that sort and then recently a little like speed bump has been like old video games like nintendo 64 games oh, that, that's, okay. that's sort of a little like detour off like the other stuff i usually am attracted towards or whatever yeah no that's awesome i uh I, I don't know why I didn't realize this, but it just it's I just uh, found out like I don't know a couple months ago that uh, there's a grading system for old video games, just like there are for like comic books. Like you send it off to a company and they will like grade your like sealed Legend of Zelda NES game or whatever, um, and it has like a rating system similar to like CGC Comics and stuff. Which I don't know why I never thought that was a thing, but it just still sort of surprised me when I. Uh, when I found out a few months ago, I've seen because I guess I, yeah. I think that, yeah, I've never heard of it. more. It might be, and I could just be talking about my ass, but I, I used to love video games. I, I think that there's just far fewer collectible games um, that people would would take the time to to get graded. But like I, the ones I always see graded um, are like the uh, the Nintendo Champ, the World Championships, the Nintendo World Championships, like NES cartridge mm-hmm. that they made, like eight copies of or whatever. Um, yeah, that's super rare one. That's super rare one. And um, uh, I'm trying to think. There was like a track and field one on NES, I think, that you see graded a lot. But I, mm-hmm. I, that's super interesting that they, they'll do that. It's like, um, yeah, finding an unopened copy of, of any of those games is, is very cool. Yeah, I, w- I would think like finding any unopened copies is, is like extremely rare already. So I guess then going off to have it graded. But I guess I just didn't realize there was as much of a collector's market for like unopened old school video games as there is. I, I totally understand like the collector's market for video games, period. But I guess my thinking was more that that's to um, plug them in and play them and that sort of thing. Um, not necessarily for the um, like the shelf value of, of like displaying and, and things like that. Oh, yeah. I've been actually... I kind of went off on a tangent when I first joined Instagram and, and was like following a lot of N64 collectors who were trying to trying to get the entire like N64 collection um, from you know one country at a time but all complete in box you know CIB wow. um, with mm-hmm. all of the original inserts and health information and obviously the instruction manuals and stuff um, and and opened or not opened but all of the stuff that came with them and, and it's super super difficult to do um and people spend a yeah. fortune on it and yeah like that was something I, I wasn't aware of either yeah i've never heard like or really looked into it that much either like i didn't know there was like you were saying like as much of a market or kind of community around that I, and now that you guys have mentioned it i'm like yeah i guess that makes sense but yeah i just never really like thought about it as much yeah huh all right so i got another question for you sean uh if you could have dinner with three media creators of any kind, singers, filmmakers, authors, whatever, uh, and they could be alive or dead, uh, what three would you choose? Oh, man. I know. This, this, is a, this is the one I'm really putting you on the spot. Um, all right. Off the top of my head, the ones that are coming to mind be Cormac McCarthy because I think he's like super smart and cool and I've loved like everything I've ever read by him Mm -hmm. 
Darn. I know Nick might say a similar one, but I feel like Stanley Kubrick would be super interesting to like have a conversation with, just For because sure. there's so much like unknown about him, or I don't like. I feel like there would be so many questions to ask or things of that sort. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess uh, Miyazaki, because he's oh. an animator I really admire, and he's like one of the best ever. And just being able to like have a conversation with him, I guess about his techniques or process or any of that would be really interesting and educational that's a solid list though yeah, cormac mccarthy answers. yeah yeah cormac mccarthy stanley kubrick and uh miyazaki that's a that's a pretty solid list man uh <laughs> so here's my Thanks. next question what's the f- your favorite piece of physical media that you own uh i probably it's maybe a tie between going back to alien trails we were talking about before because that's just like the most like borderline surreal thing i've ever found and then Mm -hmm. the black cauldron just because like it is such like a connection to my childhood that it has a lot of like emotional connection so it's like one's kind of the fun like crazy thing i found and one's the the emotional nostalgia connection nice so besides alien trails part one what would you say would be like your holy grail of physical media collection that you'd you'd love to own in your collection at one day whether it will or will not happen i guess huh i guess it's I know hard it's, to I... sorry go ahead oh what's it oh oh no um in a way it's kind of hard to know because i feel like it's like a lot of the stuff i'm attracted towards is like things i would never have known existed but then they end up being mm. like incredible because a lot of the stuff i seek out are these things from people who maybe have just put out a few or it's not like a widely known thing but mm-hmm. um i don't know maybe yeah. another alien trails-esque thing like or like i know not alien trails one is an off-limits one but i don't know like another like documentary by like an unknown filmmaker which is vague but i feel like those are the things where when i find them i'm like oh this is like the reason i'm collecting is to find these things that have been buried or sort of forgotten and uncovering them is kind of the most rewarding part to it nice. even though that's yeah, not guess... like one specific thing yeah yeah i guess that's a tough question to answer when your favorite thing and part of collecting is like the unknown so you yeah you wouldn't know what your holy grail is until you stumble upon it I guess. yeah it's kind of like a treasure hunt but you don't really know like what you're looking for in a way but so yeah i guess whatever that like the next alien trails or something somebody like put time and effort into but it's just like vanished and uncovering something like that is always the best part i think nice uh well nick those are the only those are the kind of the the rapid fire questions i had do you have anything else you uh want to ask sean um no i think you covered it man that those are difficult questions those were those i did not expect those myself i'm trying to think about how i would answer those (laughs) questions and i honestly couldn't tell you so um all right yeah i don't i don't think i have anything else to add to that all right well sean thank you so much for joining us is um is there anything you want to plug or anything before we wrap up do you have like any like um social media you want to plug or anything um yeah i guess like in my free time i do some animation goofy stuff and if anyone wants to check that out 
uh, my Instagram is Italian Consortium, and you can check out a few little like goofy animations and stuff I've done. And occasionally I'll post like little side projects I'm working on or on my story or things that I've collected or found and things of that sort. So it's kind of all in one spot there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sean. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was awesome talking to you guys. Thanks so much for inviting me and chatting. Thank you, Sean. This was great. You're our very first guest, so I think we we started on a high note here. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, thanks. It was really cool. First time being on a podcast. Me too. Nice. Um, (laughs) This is great. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. All right, that was Sean Mayman joining us as our very first guest on the Let's Get Physical podcast. Thank you again, Sean, for joining us. We really appreciate that. It was actually a really great time getting to hear about um, his love of uh, searching for found footage uh, VHS. So that was really cool. Uh, Again, if you want to check out uh, Sean online, you can find him at Italian Consortium on Instagram. Uh, And if you want to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on iTunes. That really helps us out. and we would be very appreciative of it. If you want to touch base with us or if you have suggestions for people we should contact and have on the podcast, shoot us an email at letsgetphysicalpod at gmail.com. One more time, that is letsgetphysicalpod at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram. Our handle there is letsgetphysicalpod as well. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. The wonderful music you heard on the podcast was graciously provided to us by Dana Clark. If you liked his music and would like to reach out and collaborate with him in any way, you can find him on SoundCloud.com with the handle D4N4. That's the letter D, the number 4, the letter N, the number 4. Thanks, Dana.